Hey all, welcome to the first ever bonus episode of the Two Minute Wake Up Podcast. Every so often, I'll offer a download of some other talk or communication that I've given some time or somewhere that may be of interest to you. My name is John Warner, and I'm passionate about seeing you wake up to who you were created to be. Dallas Willard is a philosopher, faith hacker. If you, I, I call him a faith hacker because if you think of a computer hacker, they have the means to get behind the surface level, get underneath it, and work with the, the code, binary, ones and zeros, in order to uh, have another result in what's going on underneath the surface. And Dallas Willard does this with faith. So often when I hear him speak, when I heard him speak, you can still hear recordings, or when I would read his writings, he would challenge things that I would assume. And uh, he has been quoted as saying that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. And one of the interesting things, uh, this is actually sometimes what happens in our marriages where we become too familiar with the one with our first love. We become so familiar that we miss the beauty and the vibrancy and the depth of our spouse. And sometimes in the midst of that uh, unfamiliarity where we miss who they truly are, our eyes start to wander. We start to look outside of our commitments and our covenants. And people actually say, some of the experts actually say that the number one cause of cheating is simply someone trying to regain the excitement that was there at one point in time in the relationship. What's interesting is when we think about the table, the communion table, there are similar things that can happen in us. When we meet Jesus, there's a lot of excitement there. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of vibrancy about new life, about being new creations. And yet, sometimes familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. We miss the truth, the depth, the vibrancy, the beauty that's with us, that we walk in each and every day. And unfamiliarity breeds contempt, where we come and we say, worship again. It's Sunday morning. Weren't we just there? Weren't we just there? Didn't we just go for a meal? Well, yeah, read again. I got I to gotta read again. I have to worship more. I have to see those people that some of them I like, some of them I don't like. Again, really? And yet, we, so we miss the beauty of what Jesus is doing in his church, of reconciling, of building relationships where there were strangers, of building family where people were disconnected. We're talking about the table this morning, friends. If you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be hanging out there, but uh, we're going to get there. So you can just put your finger there and uh, hang out there. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to keep going. Gracious Father, we thank you for your presence in the world. 
We thank you that you continue to move in us and through us and among us, around us. I just pray that we would have ears to hear your whisper, that we'd have the courage to step out and follow you where you go. Thank you for your table. May our eyes be opened once again to the beauty of its presence in our midst, the, the, uh, of it that represents your son, his sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. At the very beginning of the, the biblical narrative, we have the Bible open with, in the beginning, God created. And there's un, unfolds as this beautiful, beautiful narrative, and you have at the end of Genesis 2, where you have uh, Adam and Eve, male and female, they were naked and they felt no shame. Naked and they felt no shame. There's uh, aspects to this. There's layers to what this means. On one, one hand, okay, they, uh, they were able to be together and they didn't feel that separation. They didn't feel that they needed to one-up the other. They didn't feel like they were in competition. They didn't feel like they had to use the other for themselves. They were naked and they felt no shame. This actually parallels the relationship that at the beginning Adam and Eve were able to have with God. One that was without shame. They were able to be together. They were able to live in the space of the garden. They could walk with God and experience fellowship, communion. It was beautiful, and it was what they were created to live in. So you have this picture of man with God, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. There was fellowship. There was unity. They were invited into the very life of God, and they were experiencing that goodness. And you also had it with Adam and Eve. They were naked and they felt no shame. There was fellowship and wholeness in that relationship. But it didn't stay there. It didn't stay there. When Adam and Eve chose disobedience, they chose to rebel against God. That created a separation between themselves and God. And you actually see that where they could live with God in fellowship and wholeness and life all of a sudden you had them wallowing in shame and they were hiding. And they, were, they looked at each other and they realized they were naked and they felt shame between themselves as well and they had to cover themselves. This is the moment where we miss what we were created to do as image bearers of God. And then we have... Uh, the, the narrative of Scripture unfold, and at the very uh, beginning of Genesis 6, this is the account of the flood, but in verse 5, the Lord observed the, the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So we have this uh, echo, Adam and Eve choose rebellion, they choose, and it creates the separation. And we have this echo that humanity has this bent towards rebellion and selfishness. And we have this uh, desire of God to see that 
changed. So from the beginning, God's heart was for life and fellowship and unity and wholeness. And humans ran it from that. As God chose for himself a people, as he made a covenant with Abraham, as he gave him a law out of which to live, we see in Leviticus 19, verse 33, this command that is just, again, part of the heartbeat of God. And it says, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that, that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So a God who creates with a desire for unity, fullness, fellowship, and then you have humans break that. Adam and Eve choose selfishness and rebellion, but God pulls people back to himself. He creates a covenant with Abraham, and he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he says, live like this. And he says, as my representatives, as my people, as those that are living under my covenant, welcome the foreigner, the stranger. Welcome them. Show hospitality. And he roots it in God's own activity. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So as soon as uh, the, the, the passage here references Egypt, all of the people that hear this would remember that it was God that heard their cries of anguish as they were enslaved in Egypt. And it was God who sent Moses, and it was God who changed Pharaoh's heart as a result of the plagues, and it was God who brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and it was God that met them at Mount Sinai and gave them the law out of which to live. It was God. And so as soon as they reference this, it grounds their identity and it grounds this command in their experience of a God who moves and a God who acts and a God who has been pulling them to himself, who has shown up for them in real time. And he says, I am the Lord your God. So why do you do this? Why do you accept the foreigner? Why do you embrace the stranger? Why do you show them this? Because I have already embraced you. I have already done it for you. So at the very beginning, early on in the story, we have this rootedness of the people of God are to show hospitality. The people of God are to lower the distinctions that keep people separated in order to bring people in, into relationship. We have this. It's close to the heart of God. In the New Testament, we see a similar echo, a similar line, a similar command. 1 Peter 4.8, he's writing there and he says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. So again, we have this dynamic of showing love for others, inviting people in for a meal, showing hospitality, and to do it cheerfully. Now, the only way that we do something like that cheerfully, where we maybe invite in people that we don't like, 
is because, again, we see ourselves as rooted in this larger story of what God's doing in this world. And we understand what God has done for us. And as a result of that, we can say, yes, of course, my house is open. My table is there. Come and eat. Come and share all that I have. And we can do it cheerfully. We can do it cheerfully. Now, note that that starts with an understanding of what's going on inside of us. If it started first with, all right, friends, you better take what you got and share it. And you actually haven't been radically transformed on the inside. Then that outward behavior is simply trying to meet some sort of expectation, some sort of uh, outside behavior, and it's going to end up feeling pretty hollow because it's not rooted in what God has already done. So most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. Cheerfully share your home. Show hospitality because of what Christ has done for you. Again, in a letter Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says in Romans 12, verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Why do you give what you've got? Because of all that God has done because of all that God has done. Let your life, your bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This truly is the way to worship him. This is the way to worship him. To offer your life. And we do it because of all that he has done for us. And then later in that same chapter, Romans 12, verse 13, Paul says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And all the way through, as we've seen from Leviticus, all the way through these passages, you practice hospitality. You bring people close. You tear down the things that keep us separated in order to invite relationship because of what God has done for us. It's rooted in first activity. And that first activity is not ours. It's not ours. It's rooted in what God has already done. And that is a beautiful thing. So in essence, as we think about uh, inviting people close into our lives, and we think about sharing our table, if we think about sharing the, the, the church building that, that, that God has given to this community, sharing the passions, the giftedness that he has packed within all of you, he's talking about simply stewarding the grace that God has given. Simply stewarding it. He's given you gifts. He's given you stuff. How do you then steward that grace, that stuff, that movement of God in your life on behalf of others so that you can draw them into being in relationship with God and relationship with his people? The place for this is the table. The place for this is the table. And figuratively, It's your kitchen table, your dining room table. The table's out there. When you meet for a meal on Thursday nights, you're able to practice what this represents, what this represents, this table. So we have the Lord's table that represents some some deep spiritual symbolic uh, activity of what Christ has done for us in coming. God incarnate, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, 
fully man, fully human, living a sinless life, showing us in how he went about his business and how he interacted with the outcasts and the sinners and how he interacted with the religious elites, with how he uh, lived his life, but also by teaching us in the things that he said, the things he proclaimed, and then in going to the cross, dying for the sins, the brokenness, the rebellion of the world. From the very beginning, humanity has sought selfishness and rebellion. Jesus died for us. And then his resurrection, the conquering of sin and death and fear. So we've got this dynamic of these things that Jesus did for us. And it's beautiful. And it's vibrant. And sometimes, again, we hear the story so often. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And unfamiliarity breeds contempt. Now, I'm pretty sure none of us would have contempt for Jesus. We would never openly say that. But what does it mean when we ignore the heartbeat of God that is all the way through Scripture for the orphans, the outcasts, the foreigners? In essence, it's showing contempt to what God has always desired his people to do. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we don't even realize it. And yet, the idea of hospitality, hospitality in bringing people that are far from us close to us, bringing people that maybe we don't know to become people we know, tearing down those barriers that separate us, hospitality being near and dear to the table, because first and foremost, Christ showed hospitality to us, the ultimate hospitality in adopting us as his children sons and daughters, heirs of the king. That's an amazing, it's an amazing reality. Does it ground our identity? When you look in the mirror, does, does uh, that reality scream at you? That you are a son and daughter of the king. You're a son and daughter of the king. And because of that, because of the hospitality that God has shown us, we just get to uh, open up our hearts and share what's there. And share what's there. This is at the heart of the table. This is why, why we're here. In Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking. And so he's talking to people who are deeply religious, have... Uh, almost at times missed this heartbeat of God that hospitality is near and dear, and they've replaced it for just the the religious practice, that outward conformity of life to what they think they should be doing, but they miss that heartbeat of relationship, hospitality, sharing love. But he's, he's talking, and he says here, and he says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple... And you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. It's not about the sacrifice. It's about what the sacrifice does in the person 
that allows them to let go of the, their, their own pride, their own arrogance, to be able to go and be reconciled. Ask some forgiveness. Offer forgiveness. And in that place, live as the people that God has formed us to be. So we have this heartbeat of hospitality, this reality of, of reconciling, this all the way through. That is relationship. It's an emphasis on relationship in a way that minimizes the differences, in a way that, that tears down the walls and barriers that keeps us separated in order for us to return to being family. Return to being, and, and I please don't take this the wrong way, but return to that place where we start to catch glimpses of being naked together and feeling no shame, if that makes sense. Where we are going back to that place where God created Adam and Eve, that, that humanity where there's relational wholeness and fullness. And instead of trying to prove our identity based on pushing other people down so that we feel a little bit higher or trying to use and abuse those around us to get a little something, something out of it, we actually embrace people as family, as brothers and sisters, and we're able to know and be known, love and be loved, share the junk that we may have in our lives and not feel the shame of it because there's love and embracing their fullness. Why? Because of what God has done for us. So we have this reality. This is what's going on. This is what Christ is doing. What God has always been doing in pulling a people out from culture, forming them into his own people, and then we see this happening with the church. But from the very beginning of the church, we see that people have struggled with this. This idea of tearing down the walls and the barriers that keep us separated in order to be unified. In order to be unified. This is what's going on in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have this dynamic of people gathering for uh, fellowship, gathering for the breaking of bread, gathering for prayer, gathering for teaching, gathering for uh, family, communal, church life together. And in the midst of that, instead of experiencing what God had meant to form in them, their actions and their rhythms are actually doing something completely different. Let's see what's going on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 and following. He says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Wait a minute. Haven't we just gone through all of this trying to lay out the reality that God is trying to create a people that are hospitable, a people that tear down barriers to keep people, keep people separate, a people who share the heart of God. And yet when they meet, it's something other. More harm than good is done. First, I hear that there's divisions among you. When you meet as a church, and to some extent I do believe it. I love that little, you know, to some extent I believe it. I, I'm, I'm having trouble believing it because I know some of you. And I know your hearts. And that can't be the case. Because I know you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't stoop to this level. But he says, to some extent I believe it. I believe it's happening. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Verse 20. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. You're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. 
For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. So a lack of for some and an excess for others. What? In verse 22, I love that. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. This is Pastor Paul at his best. Right? He's slicing through pleasantries to get at the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that they have ignored what Christ has done in dying on the cross, bringing all people back into relationship with the Father, providing the opportunity for all who desire to orient their lives to Christ to actually be adopted as children of God. And yet, and, and they, they forget that and maintain the social divisions that their society says are important. Rich and poor in this context. But there's so many other divisions that society says are important that don't always get torn down in the church. I think the point is that we are to tear down those walls that keep people separate in order to experience that fullness, that wholeness of what God has always been trying to do. We have a record of what Christ did that last supper. And uh, we'll get to that. But just down, skip down to verse 27. And he says, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's harsh language. So what's interesting is we have sometimes made this concept of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner as we're eating and drinking without thinking of our sin, without thinking of our brokenness. So sometimes when I, when I was a kid growing up in church and I was participating in communion, I would look around and I would see people, they'd, they'd say a little prayer, they'd close their eyes and then they'd go up and participate in communion. And that's a part of it. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner where we ignore what Christ has done for us personally. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew. If you're bringing your sacrifices to the, the, the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, drop what you have. Go and be reconciled because that's what's important. So sinning against the body and blood of the Lord I think part of this eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is eating and drinking when there's an unreconciled brother and sister in our midst or an unreconciled brother or sister in our lives. So you may have people even here who sit on opposite sides of the room for a reason. Maybe there's a reason why people aren't talking. And I truly hope if this is the case that you get each other's blessing card. But there's times in churches where we have dynamics where we get hurt, upset, frustrated, angry with other people. And instead of doing what Christ calls us to, we actually allow it to fester within and we just ignore it. We bury it. May not be in this room. 
Maybe I'm speaking of family dynamics. Maybe I'm speaking of social dynamics in your neighborhood where you have been slighted or you've slighted someone instead of fighting to reconcile, tearing down those walls that keep you separate, you just let them grow. You just let them continue to get bigger. And you say, oh, I just won't, I'll just ignore them. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll love this person over here because it's a little easier. But when we do this, friends, we are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And we're actually guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So we sit and we say a little prayer and we ask for forgiveness. That's part of it. But maybe it's about getting up out of your seat, pulling someone inside and say, hey, we just got to chat. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe it's grabbing a phone and calling someone and say, can we grab coffee this week? Can we grab coffee this week? Because I got to talk to you. I've been a jerk. We just got to unpack this a little bit. Maybe this is because this taps into what God has always wanted his people to do, to tear down the walls that keep us separate in order to experience a touch of that pre-fall life of being together, wholeness, fellowship, life, vibrancy, goodness, beauty. Verse 28, and he says, that's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. It's tough sometimes, though. This this gets at some of the most difficult aspects of being a Christian. We love that love stuff. We love that forgiven stuff. We love that salvation stuff. We love that I'm saved, I'm good to go. That is all beautiful. But we grab that and say, yes, I am forgiven. Yes, I am a child of God. So I can forgive. So I can be reconciled. So I can walk in rhythms where I don't take myself so seriously. And I actually show other people God's love. What's interesting too is when we actually think of the process of the actual elements on the table. And usually in our, our, oftentimes in our contemporary practice, we miss the image here, but bear with me. In the, the, the chapter just previous to this, 1 Corinthians 11, so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, he says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, there's many people in this room, though we're many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. So if you think of the image of a loaf, a bakery loaf that hasn't been pre-sliced, and you have that loaf, and the, the concept of it breaking in front of us, right? One loaf, we all get to rip a chunk off that one loaf. We are part of the one loaf because of Christ. We share in the one cup. And again, we have multiple cups now because it's a little gross. I don't want to share the same cup necessarily with you, friends. But the concept of drinking out of the one cup, because it's the one sacrifice, the one time where Jesus shed his blood. That's the one cup from which we are able to drink. 
Right? There's this idea, this beautiful image that, that that bread broken, one loaf. That cup drank, we share it, one sacrifice. It's the one thing that binds us together, that cuts through all of it, whether it be the language we speak, whether it be the skin that covers our bones, whether it be uh, what's going on in our heads in terms of how intellectual some IQ test may say we are. What cuts through it is that it's the one sacrifice of Christ that brings us all together, brothers and sisters, in the family of God. So as a church, big C church, I'm not talking about just Joshua Crossing. As a church, as a big C church, churches that meet across Oakville, across the Golden Horseshoe area here in Ontario, all across Ontario, all across the country, and all around the world, the churches that claim Jesus Christ, the churches that together break bread and drink of the cup, actually have an opportunity to show the world what it's like to reconcile, what it's like to bring people close, to tear down the walls that keep us separate. And yet far too often it's the exact opposite story that gets proclaimed. Well, churches, the Christians don't like this type of person. They don't want that type of person. You know, they, they aren't really about that. They try to, you know, keep themselves separated from the world because they don't want to be tarnished, but they keep the world at arm's length. And all it's saying is that we are called to something better, called to a different way of living and interacting. Now, what if we were able to do that as a church? What if we were able to function as one body? Because that's actually where Paul goes. Out of this, where he's calling the church to be the church, where he's challenging people about how they participate in the body and blood, how they participate in the Lord's table, how they participate in communion. And he actually goes to the place of the body of Christ is a metaphor for the people, for Christians. And he, in, in the next chapter, in chapter 12, he unpacks how people have been wired differently and gifted differently. And yet we all make up one body. So the idea of one body with many parts. What if we functioned as one body? What if we had the same mind, the mind of Christ, that led our actions and our activities and our interactions and our relationships in such a way that people actually knew that they were loved by God because we loved them. And we were able to love because we recognized that we were loved first. It always starts with God's activity. It's always rooted. God has never asked us to do something that he has not first done, accomplished, will fuel us for it, give us the energy to accomplish. And that is a beautiful thing. Because in the end of it, where, where you, you're saying, okay, John, I hear you, but you don't know what was done to me. You don't know what I'm still holding on to. You don't know. And I mean, you're right, I don't know. I don't know. But again, God's not asking you to do anything that he has not already taken on himself, that he is not ready to step in with you. He is right there with you. He will give you the energy. He will give you the capacity. He'll give you the courage. He'll give you the strength to move through those awkward conversations to get to the place of being unified. When we think about being unified, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And yet, uh, even as a body, when we think of a body, we, we think, oh, it's, it's all seamless. It can actually muddle the metaphor a little bit because there is a uniqueness in all of us that is valued within the body of Christ. 
And that is an amazing thing. Think of an orchestra. Think of an orchestra. To have a symphony that's playing out, that allow, the people are invited to appreciate. You have individual notes, and you have chords. And then you have melodies, and you have bass notes. And you have this whole mixture of sound that comes together into something that's radically beautiful. And you have various instruments that all play a part in bringing about this glorious sound when they all play their part. Sometimes I feel that there's, we go about it and yet you have that one uh, flautist, a flautist that has gone rogue and they've ignored the melody. And they've ignored what everyone else is doing around them. And they've ignored the orchestra that has been formed that they are a part of, that they get to play their part of. And they've gone rogue and they're playing their own melody. I think the table brings us back. And it gives us the place to say, it's not about your agenda. It's not about your rogue melody. Come back and play the song that Christ has been playing that he played himself, and that he invites us to join in with the lives that we're living. May we lend our lives. May we lend our hearts. May we lend our relationships into this orchestration of love that God is playing in the world, that he's invited us as the church to play. May we see the table anew with fresh eyes that Christ himself died for us, brought us back into relationship with the Father. And he invites us to tear down the walls that keep people separate so that they can experience that same love that we experienced and brought us into the family of God. Gracious Father, we thank you for your son's activity here in the world. world. Yes, his life, yes, his teachings, but his death and the resurrection. We thank you for what you've done for us. May we not lose sight of our first love. I just pray, Father, that the familiarity of the table would not breed contempt. Unfamiliarity and that unfamiliarity breed contempt. I just pray that we would be uh, amazed, compelled by the reality of who we are in Christ. That in Christ, there's no longer male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, but we are all one in Christ. There's the opportunity of unity, wholeness, fulfillment because of Christ, because of his shed blood. Lord Jesus, change our hearts. Soften the wounds and scars and calluses that we've allowed to form as a defensive mechanism. May our hearts be so soft and may we just simply be your church, united by Christ, moving in step with the Spirit, representing your love and light in the world, breaking down strongholds that keep people separated, inviting people to participate in your love, your family. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the first ever bonus episode of the Two Minute Wake Up Podcast. 
Hit me up in the DM so that we can continue the conversation. My name is John and I hope that our time together helps you wake up to who you were created to be.